Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 53, the premiere of season two. It's finally here. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum, and I'm so happy to be here. Uh, season two. Didn't think we would make it here, but I'm glad there's another season. Yeah, I'm JT White, and I'm just real happy uh, Sirius uh, Satellite Radio, in partnership with uh, Spotify, uh, were able to pick us up uh, for a deal to keep us around another year. Yeah. I know they have that option on like the mid-season replacement, so we are going to be on our best behavior for the next you know six months or so. Yeah, um, from now on, we're catering to Dave Portnoy's uh, sensibilities and needs because that's who's going to keep us around, save us from uh, a non-podcasting lifestyle, which I'm not ready to do. <laughs> so for season two's premiere, uh, we wanted to program, you know, a big uh, epic, if you will, triple feature, uh, an extra stuffed, uh, double stuffed, pouring over the edges episode, just filled with film podcasting as much as much of it as we can give you so each of us picked out uh, a favorite film of ours that the other two had not seen my selection was edgar g olmer's the black cat from 1934 what about you jt um for extended clip magnum edition i picked uh the long gray line 1955 uh by john ford nice nice i i picked... uh, what about yeah yeah you malcolm me, yeah. I sorry for stepping. See, the, we got to get more professional. Uh, it's but, um, okay. Uh, I picked the Beguiled, directed by Don Siegel, and uh, I just really wanted to roll out the red carpet for the triple extended clip uh, season two premiere. And I think this would be a good movie to do. And you know, Malcolm, I, I hate to come right out of the gate and oh, criticize no. you. But what we're doing here is a call-in, and I, I think it's really just like a, a shame that after all this time off, you did such a no-growth to just deny female directors and not do the upgraded version of The Beguiled. Oh, yeah. Well, um, I, didn't, I, I wasn't really aware that that's a thing. You're erasing people. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's switch to the Sofia Coppola one now. I, I wouldn't want to do that because... Uh, maybe season one extended clip Malcolm would, you know, make an offhand comment about that. But that's that's the type of shit we take seriously now. And um, you know what? You're right. And, you know, I've always been sexist. And it's time to, for me to... <laughs> it's, time for, it's time for me to admit it full stop and not to, not to take any glory in admitting it. Like, it's, this is a selfless action. So, Eddie, you're right. We will do the Sofia Coppola one now. Uh, no, we are going to get to the seagull uh, uh, beguiled in about an hour or so, but there is some uh, erasing that Sofia Coppola actually does. I, I was very surprised to see some elements of this film that were dropped in the remake, uh, this being my first time watching it, but we'll get to that film when we get to it. The Black Cat, 1934. Edgar G. Ulmer. This is his only studio movie, really. Uh, Edgar G. Ulmer is the king of Poverty Row. That's kind of, you know, if you Google his name, that's probably the first thing that's going to come up. Uh, and you may ask, why was he relegated to Poverty Row if he was such a king of directors? Why weren't the big studios more kind to him? Well, it could be because his second American film, 
the black cat for Universal Pictures. In the process of it, um, he cuckolded the nephew of super producer Carl Lemley and ran away uh, with that nephew's wife. And they became a filmmaking team, not unlike uh, you know Bogdanovich and Polly Platt, uh, where she was with Ulmer, credited on pretty much the rest of his pictures as script supervisor. Uh, and that was enough to vanquish him from Hollywood. So, you know, clearly we're dealing with a guy who values, uh, you know, the good things in life over corporate Hollywood studios. <laughs> Add him to the list of uh, great Hollywood alphas. Because, uh, and then not because, not because he stole someone's wife, that's not respectful, but because he did the right thing and married her. And that's respectful. <laughs> I like this clear-eyed, moralizing Malcolm <laughs> season two. Malcolm taking a page from his hero, Armand White, and really digging into the, the moral ramifications of these movies. I mean, what what are we not... What, <laughs> what are we without our morals, <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. What are we, morals? <laughs> I'm moraling over, over here, man. <laughs> Uh, so this is a picture with both Karloff and Lugosi within the universal horror cycle, but they don't play either of their classic monsters. No, they're monsters that represent the horrors of uh, war and the turn uh, into the 20th century. And you, you have this you know, audience identification couple, uh, which kind of predates like the bozo teenagers and slasher movies you know the the boring characters that you kind of have to have to make horror movies like this get by until you can introduce these amazing villainous presences yeah and at all times it seems like these characters are like yeah just a platform for um Lugosi and Karloff to do some some real premiere acting off of I mean from the jump once we have Lugosi on the train he's just speaking in like this slow, you know, almost droll fashion, just saying like, I, I just came from the toughest prison to get out of and I'm back. I'm slaughtering his line. The line is way better in the movie, but it's, uh, it's said with such conviction and like, I don't know, the tone is already up, up and running. I uh, love how like the sort of ghosts of like World War One and just previous European conflict looms over the film. And it feels like a weird like premonition to World War Two with all that tension like bubbling under. Like it's uh I don't know, real creepy. Yeah, no, it definitely was more in line with the uh you know, war aspects of the other films that that kind of surprised me as I went back to it because I had thought about it in that context before, but watching this after something like the long gray line really put it into perspective in terms of the World War One ramifications. <clears throat> so, Bella Lugosi uh, is introduced to this couple on the train. They get off the train together and are in a car that spills over on the road uh, as the driver is telling them that they're driving past like the the most devastating grave site in all of Europe from the first world war. And that there was a, you know, a, a mansion built on top of it. And that mansion, uh, was built by a ruler. It was, I guess was Boris Karloff's character. Was he like a, an Austrian general? Was it? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And also a master architect, uh, 
And, you know, as Bella Lugosi puts it, his house is a masterpiece of construction built upon the ruins of a masterpiece of destruction. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, the this great house uh, set piece we have in this movie, you know, it kind of reminds me, you're saying Ulmer's the king of Poverty Row, and I know he was working with probably more resources here than he did in most of his other movies, but um, just how simple this movie is and, it, and uh, you know, how great it is, even though it's just basically kind of like a mansion movie, kind of like, I don't know, a lot of direct-to-horror movies, are, are they just have a mansion that they're renting out from some producer and they just shoot the whole thing there. And this is almost that, but it's like the formal qualities and the acting really just bring it to a whole nother level. Oh, yeah, totally. And with the like whole mansion set piece and like Karloff's character in general, in general, we return to like a classic theme of uh, season one extended clip of us hunting down the the, the creepy elite. Um, only, I mean, Karloff is less pedophilic in this instance and just necrophilic. As a pre-code film, this has a lot of very, uh, so to say fucked up shit that would not be allowed just like a couple years later by the censors i mean there is like a satanic uh worshiping like boris karloff gets into bed with his bay and opens up the rites of lucifer like this movie is <laughs> fucked up uh and that girlfriend it turns out of course is uh bella Gossi's daughter who he thinks is dead that's the ultimate cuck is the someone who kills your wife and then uh, marries your daughter. That's a, yeah. that's no good. Oh yeah. I mean like Lugosi has such a towering presence, but then like Karloff just anything, everything you learn about him throughout this movie, you're like, Oh, this man is like a God of evil, like a devil, literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Yeah. His silent confidence throughout the film is, uh, is very eerie. I mean, just, I, I love the, the parts where, you know, we have multiple people talking together and just Karloff will just be just kind of leering at Lugosi, you know, knowing that a, a confrontation is about to go down. Yeah. And the way that uh, Ulmer stages all of the characters in this uh, house, you know, he's so skillful at maneuvering characters around the frame, even when there's only a couple, you know, there's so many just like mirrors and panes of glass and shadows and like great you know high contrast black and white stuff that it's just like a pure you know uh like sandbox for someone like edgar g ulmer to just get the most stylistic potential out of while also uh using it more than anything as a template for these two you know grade a hams to just do their best work you know he'll always have something obscuring the frame and, you know, he's just very savvy with just kind of basic elemental, you know, camera tricks and staging. One thing that comes to mind that I thought was really kind of deceptively layered was uh, when at first you arrive at Karloff's mansion, uh, the, the wife is on pills and she's kind of out of the picture. And uh, Karloff and Lugosi are kind of having their first conversation alone. And then when their conversation ends, you, you realize that the husband was kind of there for most of the time listening in on it and then you realize that his servant was then listening in on it it's you know just <laughs> it's just pull, peeling back the layers you know like yeah. jt said we're, we're discovering the pedophiles you know you could also you know <laughs> discover things in a formal way 
<laughs> no, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the great discoveries of this film is right after uh, right after Bella Lugosi quite literally shouts out the production design and says that you know it's a tricky house. Uh, then he gets he gets the tour. He gets the MTV Cribs treatment as uh, Boris Karloff leads him into his lair where he has these dead bodies of women, just like. Uh, you know, uh, f- it looks like frozen and just like suspended in air in these weird tubular capsules, one of which being Bela Lugosi's dead wife. And uh, it's just like the combination of acting, camera movement, production design, uh, not original score here, but like classical pieces that are so perfect for the scenes. Just, I don't know, this and then the next scene where uh, their conversation is left by the camera. Ulmer just kind of pulls away right when Karloff's going into this grandstanding monologue about how they're playing this game of death and the music swells up and the camera is just exploring this underground space of the mansion. Many have remarked upon the scene before. I'm not the first to say it, but it really is like some of the hardest shit you could possibly find in cinema. Come, Vetus. Are we men or are we children? Of what use are all these melodramatic gestures? You say your soul was killed, and that you have been dead all these years. And what of me? Did we not both die here in Marmorous 15 years ago? Are we any the less victims of the war than those whose bodies were torn asunder? Are we not both the living dead? And now you come to me, playing at being an avenging angel, childishly thirsting for my blood. We understand each other too well. We know too much of life. We shall play a little game, Venus. A game of death, if you like. But under any circumstances, we shall have to wait until these people are gone it's an absolute big big money scene and i i mean for as hammy as some of the dialogue could be i feel like there's like such a a doomed atmosphere to what they're saying that it just comes off as you know so enjoyable and who better than you know these actors to say these lines it feels like it feels like a perfect fit uh speaking of corny lines one of my favorites is uh, (laughs) when the audience identification couple just want to get the fuck out of there and they know what they're up against um the husband mr allison a mystery writer picks up the phone uh to try and call like a hospital and you know it's dead and boris karloff is just like you hear that Peters? the phone is dead even the phone is dead Just one of the great line deliveries. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, as the film ramps up, first they have to get rid of some cops that show up. And it's so great. These bozo cops don't even have cars. They ride up on bicycles, I guess. And they're just, like, bragging about their hometowns being good places to visit and competing with each other, which whose uh, hometown is a better vacation spot. 
Uh, and then they get rid of the cops and shit really ramps up as the satanic ritual begins and the wife of the uh, Allison couple is put up on the cross. Uh, and it's really just like a mesmerizing scene. Yeah, um, all the framing and like the just, I mean, aside from the pre-code content, um, it's just fascinating to see what feels like such a foundational text of like horror cinema and just how fucking dark and bleak it gets there at the end. And just sort of like the competition between the two men, like Karloff and Lugosi, like borders on like homoerotic at points, like especially coming down to the end where like, uh, uh, Lugosi is like going to skin Karloff and he's just like laying there like shirtless. Yeah, that, that shit's that's just getting pretty kinky. Yeah. Oh my god. The skinning image is just beautiful where you just get that silhouette of him get taking the knife to him. Yeah, and I think this is we have a classic thing going on here where two characters, you know, even though they have their differences are both kind of have have to accept the same things. You know, it's these are two dead men having to accept that they're dead in a sense. And, you know, that atmosphere is something that's, you know, remarked upon uh, constantly throughout the movie. You know, the characters are always talking about like the death in the air, you know, on this built on this, these uh, burial grounds. Oh yeah. The atmosphere of death is very palpable. (laughs) And then the film wraps up right after that as uh, you know, you kind of get a, uh, I'm not going to go through the details of it, but you get a nice, uh suspense set piece based out of that uh satan worshiping ritual that ends with both uh horror icons dead in the mansion as it explodes uh putting to waste this you know monument to the tragedy uh, of the wor- first world war and the the two characters get back on the train and they read a review of Mr. Allison's uh, latest mystery novel, as that is his profession. And it says that, you know, the novel is too outlandish and he needs to get real, you know. And it kind of reminded me of the end of They Live, where you have like Ebert and Roper on TV talking about how John Carpenter and George Romero need to tame down their violence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely commenting on something. And I, I like, you know, the ni- nice little bit of humor at the end. I thought it was a nice light joke to wrap things up. Yeah, of course. Uh, I love this movie. I mean, like, the all the elements just come together so perfectly, you know. It's a script that is just filled with lines that only the highest caliber of actor can deliver without appearing to be a complete fool. Uh, and the production design and cinematography is incredible. Edgar G. Ulmer takes a lot of credit for the early innovations in camera movement. Uh, a lot of those claims are probably false. Maybe they're true, though. Uh, but apparently he was working with Murnau in the early days. And whether or not, you know, all of that is true, it shows in his camera work. It's His movement is always so fluid and expressive. And, you know, this is one of the great examples of that. And uh, it's an all-time classic for me. I'm going five bullets. This one kind of caught me off guard. I mean, you know, I knew since you were bringing it to the table, I knew it was going to be some good stuff. And I'd watched Detour before, and I thought that was really good. But, like, I feel like this one really kind of unlocked Ulmer for me. I was really impressed by, like, the formal qualities and the the framing and just kind of how everything just – 
uh, interconnected together so perfectly and, you know, it's such a nice short run time. And yeah, I mean, the script was, you know, equally as good for me. I mean, some of the dialogue that these actors are saying, you know, almost sound like just, you know, they almost can range on like one-liners, you know, to a certain extent. But, you know, when you got guys like that, when you got actors like these, same lines <laughs> like those. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm going to give this one four and a half bullets. I really was impressed. Uh, this was the first, uh, Ulmer I've seen. Um, so I it knew coming in to expect a, a heavy hitter. Um, but I mean, in general, I was surprised by how well the three films sort of pair together with us just sort of loosely picking things that we liked. Um, like the whole sort of, uh, aspect of war and death sort of lingering throughout the three movies with Black Cat and the Beguiled, you get like some pretty sleazy flicks and then contrasted with like the very straight laced qualities of uh, the long gray line. Um, but yeah, I just had a great time. It's a, a tight 69 uh, that um, really delivers a whole lot there. And I think I'm probably going to check out Detour soon because I'm very, very curious about Ulmer. Oh, yeah. Detour is a masterpiece. Uh, shout out to sister podcast, The Important Cinema Club, who's praised Detour for years and years. And frankly, they're the ones who put me onto that. So, yeah, shout out to Edgar G. Ulmer, one of the best of all time. Watch The Naked Dawn as well. I mean, I talked about that on the podcast in the middle, I think last week. Uh, but that's like also a crazy, crazy classic movie. We'll be right back on Extended Clip. <laughs> Lupus pilum mutat non mentem, magna est veritas et prevalabit, acta exteriora indicant interiora secreta. Welcome back to Extended Clip, your favorite segment, Malcolm in the Middle. What else did you (laughs) watch this week, Malcolm? Actually, could you go first? I'm sorry. I still need to generate some thoughts. (laughs) I I introduced the phrase Malcolm in the middle because you go first every fucking time. (laughs) Then I I middled myself. Uh Uh All right. You know what? Okay. That that makes more sense. Malcolm will be in the middle. Uh, JT, do you want to go first? Yeah. Fuck it. Why not? This week, uh, just like, I mean, hot off of like, obviously a lot of stuff with George Floyd protests happening that influenced like my watching habits and wanting to like do some more serious things. And like, just because of the nature of everything, like reminded me very heavily of do the right thing. Um, today when the episode comes out, uh, Spike Lee's to five bloods is going to come out on Netflix and I'm going to watch that right away. Um, but I wanted to fill in a lot of spikes that I haven't seen. So I did a little sampler, um, for a little bit. Um, recently like sticking out in memory was, uh, jungle fever, which I was really rig- real, real, eh, I was really, really digging up until the ending. I mean, it has like a famously bad ending that I don't really want to spoil. I don't think it's like terrible. It like has to do with like spikes, like sexual politics and it being like, uh, corny and that, and like, kind of like a dad being afraid of his daughter being like a prostitute sort of. Um, But it has like 
one of a standout performance from Sam Jackson as like a crack addict who his name is Gator. And there are various points where he's like begging his like more well off brother, Wesley Snipes um, for like money. And he does a lot of like dancing around for it. And it's like a really like, I don't know. I feel like uh, seeing like the sort of established like big cred roles Sam Jackson has had like later throughout his career. It's fun to see him do this very, very scummy minor role. And I think that's like one of the most exciting parts of the film. Um, but oh, also Wesley Snipes performance is phenomenal. But then aside from that, I watched 25th hour. Um, he got game. And then the most recent one was uh, She's Gotta Have It, which is a horny classic. I immediately added it to my sucking and fucking list of horniest films. And I just like <laughs> uh, Spike is just like it's I've been building a theory for a long time that like the best directors are horny. It doesn't like you don't necessarily <laughs> have to be horny to be one of the best directors, but there is an emerging pattern and just like the way, like a lot of the fucking and she's got to have it is shot. And just like, even when I, I rewatched do the right thing, like the scenes with like Mookie, like, and the ice cube, it's just spike knows like how to, how to rile you up. And get you in there with that sensuality. And that's, I don't know, that's if movies aren't there to get you horny a little bit, then I don't know what they're for. Yeah. Two notes on She's Gotta Have It horniness. Uh, one is that it is a very baller move of Spike uh, writing himself some action in that movie <laughs> for his character. Always a cool thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Two, the one Canceled. scene that he he's denounced from his filmography is uh kind of not the climax of the film, but towards the end of that film. Um, yeah, it's pretty rough, but it's like, honestly, he's done worse than that. I, that's not the one, that's not the thing to denounce in my opinion, <laughs> in my opinion, the thing to denounce is taking money from the NYPD, but Hey, yeah. yeah. Well, well, you know what? Maybe you should denounce <laughs> both things, Eddie. It doesn't have to be either or, <laughs> You know, it's not okay to, because I, I think if the listeners know what scene you're talking about, I don't know how much they'd agree with you, so. Um. Well, no, I, I don't know. Wait, wait, what do you think about the scene, Malcolm? Uh, it's not, I mean, it's not great. Not a great no, scene. obviously, it's, it's not, it doesn't depict a good thing, but like, is it, uh, I don't know, it's been a while, but I don't remember Same. it being particularly tasteless or anything like that. Like, yeah. it shows, it depicts a very ugly thing in an ugly fashion you know I, I i agree to that to some extent i mean it's like a part of like i feel like spike i mean in like spike sexual politics are are weird like again that like played into like jungle fever where it's like uh him like wesley snipes being worried about like the 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 purity of his daughter at the end a little bit and some more like prudish elements but i think it's just like I don't know. It's a very ugly thing happening. I, I like. I don't. I, I don't think the depiction is in and of itself bad. I think it just like paints a broader picture of um, yeah. Spike's like complicated like uh, relationship with sexuality. Well, I think also not to go, not and, to like give too much auteurist credit, but like he does mature in that sense. This is his first, you know, real yeah. feature, and he matures mm -hmm. in that sense throughout his career. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, you know, Spike, you know, his movies are filled with, like, you know, explicit opinions and stuff like that. And, you know, throughout his filmography, you get to see his opinions, you know, if not change, but grow and evolve over time. And, you know, that's, you know, as an auteurist, that's a, that's a fun thing to do. That's why, you know, it's part of the reason why you do it. I mean, that is why I do it. Uh, <laughs> Malcolm, what about you? Yeah, well, you know, I was, you know, I, I'm over here, you know, hemming and hawing about a problematic scene and uh, she's got to have it. <laughs> While I'm about to talk about the TV series Entourage, which I, uh, you know, um, sexual politics of that show, a bit outdated, but that's, uh, that's not even worth getting into. I mean, I'm, look- I'm looking at the... <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at the I'm looking at the reviews, you know, to Entourage. People, you know, saying it's a this is the movie, but I'm sure it applies to the show as well. Um, you know, masturbatory fantasy of men's rights activists uh, <laughs> um, lacks any self awareness, cutting you know character development for cameos, and it's like, yeah, that is what the show's about. That is, um, you know, it's about some some shallow guys who live a a glitzy life in Los Angeles. And uh, I don't know, it's, you know, beyond that, beyond all that, and I will say that I was talking to my grandma recently, and she has seen all of Entourage, much to my surprise. Um, (laughs) So, I don't know, maybe it's not sexist. But... um, (laughs) Hey, look, if my grandma... Yeah, maybe, I mean, my grandma doesn't like vulgar stuff, you know, and like, I don't know, like, fucking Jeremy Piven is calling his assistant, you know, gay slurs every, every other episode, but uh, in, in a loving way, right? It, it's in a, in, a ver- in a very Gran Torino type way. It's, you know, the politics, the politics of this show are very, uh, it's the same people who, you know, I guess I'm a person who likes Gran Torino, but like, People who liked Gran Torino in a very 2008 way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, people like Steve Mnuchin, who uh, bankrolled the Entourage movie, stuff like that. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel like I've been shit-talking it, but, you know, this, this show is some, uh, some good camaraderie. We have a good music supervisor, so we have some, you know, some fun rap music playing. Um, and... Lots of cameos. If if you're a fan, I'm a fan of Holly, the Hollywood system, and the Hollywood stars. I'm not really a fan of like independent cinema and stuff like that. <laughs> and um, I don't know. It's it's fun to see David Arquette and Gary Busey and Tom Brady and uh, Mark Wahlberg show up. You know, on the golf course. And um, I had I had a good time, and then I don't regret anything. Now, now uh, Eddie, I know you've been watching television too. And uh, it's it's not it's no entourage. It's no it's no show like Entourage. <laughs> a lot of shows can't really get to that height. But w- what have you been watching? Regarding Entourage, you had me at Gary Busey. But anyway, I've been watching Mad Men. Um, that felt so inorganic. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mad Men's a show that I watched the first three seasons of a couple years back, and then uh, put the put on the back burners and then when it was about to expire on netflix yeah i gave into that phenomenon of something leaving streaming so you watch all of it real quick i did that with mad men and uh i loved it it's a it's a really fantastic show it has such like patient camera work and direction for 
uh, a prestige TV show, which is what it is, you know, and I badmouth prestige TV all the time. This is one of the good ones. I think that its cultural uh, like reference points are very selective and often very kind of revisionist in a way that a nitpicker uh, might well nitpick but i had a lot of fun with that like there's a scene uh in season five i believe uh it may be season six though uh where don's second wife megan uh she's an actress and she's living in california and uh he goes to the movies and he watches model shop a film by jacques demy a french director uh, that takes place on the streets of los angeles at least the scene that was shown in mad men uh, and for that to be the film that triggers him to go to California uh, to see his French actress wife and uh, eventually end things with her uh, was like, it feels too cheeky, but it makes it even more devastating somehow. And there's so much great stuff going on. There's this character, Ginsburg, my favorite character. Oh, Ginsburg fucking rules. Dude, Ginsburg absolutely fucking rules. So he is a Holocaust survivor who does not uh, believe that that could possibly be true. Uh, He denies that. He's a Holocaust survivor and denier. Uh, He believes that he's a Martian uh, beamed in from space because that makes more sense than seeing your family die in uh, concentration camps, you know? And so he comes to the firm around season five or six, and uh, there's a great, like, way of him leaving where IBM installs one of their giant computers in the offices uh and you know this is the 60s a computer takes up a room and people are pissed off that literally a you know it's like their offices are being automated their workspaces you know uh giving way to to new technology to further capital blah 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 uh ginsburg's not taking that perspective he's saying this the humming that this thing's making uh, is turning everyone into homos and uh, anytime he sees like, two men in the in the room where the computer is being built he thinks that the computer has turned them gay uh, and then uh, he uh, like goes on this crazy rant about like having like a stoppage in a valve in his body and he finally released it and that stoppage was his nipple and he cut his nipple off and like gave it to uh peggy and uh that is when he leaves the show uh he is a uh he's a 5150 case after that uh and honestly like for ibm uh that being the particular there you know a uh nazi collaborator in ibm driving a holocaust survivor to the point of insanity is such a like i don't know it were people thinking that when they watched the show as it aired or was that just me maybe i'm giving myself too much credit on that but that's something that uh really blew me away kind of and his character went from being like kind of laughable but in a fun way to being just so touching and like i i love it also the episode the summer man where don starts writing in a journal and fucking goes all diary of a country priest on us and is like swimming laps and uh getting meditative with his thoughts is just uh pure cinema i mean come on uh you would be mad for men that's all I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> damn that got me too good <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, no, that's a good one, man. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You got me. I'm fucking gay. <laughs> You're gay. You're out. You're gay, dude. You're out. We're not selling a gay podcast. <laughs> dude, I, I was at my uncle's when I was watching Mad Men, and I had Don's voice for like 30 seconds, and I lost it, and I chased it for like three days. <laughs> I know oh, that could not get I, it back. Yeah, it's, could not get it back. Oh, that's devastating. And we're back on extended clip. Uh, our next film, JT picked this one out, The Long Gray Line by John Ford, 1955. I got one question. Where are all the fucking cowboys, man? <laughs> yeah. Where's John Wayne? This is like, I don't know, a very weird Ford. I feel like very, like I was looking at Letterboxd and like only like 1,200 people like have it logged. Um, which like when I watched it, I, this is like a with your dad classic. And I watched this on DVD with my old man, like, um, maybe like six, eight years ago. Um, and I like instantly loved it. And I thought it was probably like, yeah, I mean there it's like well-regarded. Sure. Like most Fords are, but like, I don't think as much as it should be. And I think it's like a weird synthesis of military mode Ford and his nostalgia for the uh, like English and Irish countryside and combines that in a beautiful way. That's a story of just a man's life. That's like feels pretty plotless. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the plot is a man spends 50 years at the fucking West Point uh, Military Academy, you know, Mm -hmm. and things come and go and life goes on. You know, yeah, Uh, it's beautiful. It's existentialist. It's hilarious. It has some very uh, physical humor and funny like action uh, in like the football and swimming scenes. Obviously, it's Ford. Ford can't make a not beautiful movie. It's like he has the best eye in the world. Like everything is shown uh, just in such a perfect way with such like, I don't know, uh, necessary uh, camera movement and montage. And it's like for a film that feels so sprawling and uh endless and plotless it also feels so precise in a way you know when things loop back around you know 20 years later and you're and ford is framing uh the same location the same way but you see how the people have changed uh and you kind of put the two images together in your head you realize you know how much attention to detail is going into like every scene of this film no, absolutely. Like the way this uh, movie's formatted, yeah, it kind of starts out as kind of like a, you know, broad slapstick. You know, a lot of scenes, like a lot of scenes kind of strung together, not exactly uh, plot heavy. But then I feel like the plot emerges, you know, as the movie comes on. And it really kind of uh, not doesn't catch you off guard, but the tone shifts in a, a lot of different ways that works every single time, so, you know, to the point where. You know, I was, you know, damn near crying at the end of the movie. 
because this movie really oh, does yeah. have everything. You know, it contains a lot of multitudes. And you know, I know, I know, it's not cool to like the troops nowadays. You know, I know it's not. <laughs> um, but John Ford was, you know, a Category One troop respecter, and I remember hearing about, or probably reading, probably didn't get this off of a, you know, oral history. I read somewhere that. John Ford would clown on John Wayne on set for not being a veteran, basically, because John <laughs> Wayne would try to act tough, and then he'd be like, "You're not. You didn't even enlist in the military, you fucking pussy." <laughs> so, and I, I think that's you know, that's a good way to keep a, a big bull like Wayne humbled. You got to remind him that he he is truly soft, you know, in real life. It's the films without Wayne where, like, the existential themes, I feel like, come forward more, you know? Yeah. Like, this and Wagon Master, uh, both with phenomenal performances across the board, but when you don't have the big bull like John Wayne, you know, uh, it feels almost less human because there's no real face to pin John Ford's ideas on when John Wayne's not in the movie. And it feels like his ideas are more in the landscape than in one actor's face, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, we're talking about the black cat, you know, the characters saying, you know, feel the death in the air. I mean, as this movie progresses and, uh, you know, characters you know fade away not a lot of pronounced deaths but you know you kind of realize these deaths as the movie goes on and him living in this you know uh military base at west point for so many years you, you realize you know how many people he's lost along the way and it, it devastates him you, you see kind of the institutional victories you know that the army has and then they'll be un- underlined by these you know personal tragedies of uh, lives lost by uh, yeah our Irish main character, our Mick yeah. Fuck. While it does uh, like <laughs> r- sort of um, like have that elements of like uh, celebrating military values of like honor and like a level of like dignity in, in war and stuff like that, it does undercut that with its relationship with like people and institutions. Like they, the structures are like so defined by like the ghosts of the people that built them and the people that filled these spaces. Um, one of like my favorite, like little scenes is when Marty is like significantly older and is just, um, hanging around West point and he like gets, uh, into like a pretty heated conversation with the governor. Uh, and then he like looks at that old, like a, um, sort of like a statue of the corporal he knew uh, when he first uh, started working there. And just all the whole of the movie is just filled with like, I mean, it's like him retelling a story, but it's like beautiful memories of the people that made the institution something to be respected. One of the more interesting aspects of the movie is how the institutional and the personal intertwine. And, you know, some of uh, Maher, What's his, is his name Mar? Bill Mar? Mar- yeah, Mar- like Mar- Bill Mar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Start the clock. <laughs> uh, new rules, you gotta join the military. Um, <laughs> Martin Mar, some of his best moments, right, are um, kind of these personal favors, you know, people singing for him, you know, in important life moments, or when, you know, he doesn't have anything, but that are provided by this institutional structure. 
and uh, it's you know it's it's a very complicated thing, but it's you know whether you like the military or not, whether you're a pro-military listener or not, you could uh, appreciate the humanism found within these spaces. I mean, at least here with Ford. I mean, that's what makes it such a difficult film, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, the American military is not something I like um, <laughs> as an institution. And it's not like uh, this, you know, Ford interrogating this institution. There is some interrogation. It's not like it's Frederick Wiseman doing one of his institutional movies about the military. But there is uh, a recognition of the kind of lack for regard of human life and how a more humanist person uh, thrown into that machine kind of, you know, cuts against that very militaristic instinct of leaving people behind and quote unquote, just remembering them, you know? Yeah. It's not like the traditional, like military Academy story or singular military hero story where it valorizes the main character for going into war and like killing people and like making it back and everything. Marty leads a really weird life where he doesn't get a lot of the things that he wants. He's kind of a goofball. He, he like definitely fucks up a fair bit, but just like it, celebrates him for being like an ordinary guy that really cares about a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of entrenched in this system, but kind of on the outskirts, you know, when it comes to, you know, praise or, or, you know, even rank and stuff like that, or, you know, or even, uh, um, pay as discussed. It's not like he, you know, he's making a fortune, you know, working for the U S military. Um, no, yeah, he has a few opportunities to get out of there, you know, his brother being a businessman, but he sticks with it. He sticks at the the military academy to teach boxing and swimming, which he can't even swim, which leads to a very funny scene, of course. Um, also, the first scene of him boxing, like the instructor just <laughs> knocking him out of the ring is fucking hilarious. I'm interested in boxing, not dancing. Oh, it's it's so funny. It's so fun. yeah. Those sports scenes, or even those early scenes where he's, uh, you know, fucking dropping dishes like a like. Oh a my bat. god! Yeah, um, so funny. <laughs> the bad waiter. Yeah, total bad waiter. Or um, and like another scene that uh, sticks out to me, like almost some silent comedy, some uh, you know, Charlie Chaplin, if you've heard of him, um, is when <laughs> he first he first sees his wife, his uh, soon to be wife. Um, while he's helping out, you know, with the boxing classes, and he's he has all these gloves, and um, the two other people leave the room, and he just stares at her, you know, and like <laughs> drops the gloves, and then like she just kind of freezes up, and then I don't know, it's just such a weird, weird, like such a weird pace to this scene that it's kind of representative to kind of like the the weird but like enjoyable pacing of kind of like the first half of the movie i would say or you know around that there's almost kind of like a um not a slowness to it but it's like almost like i i found i found it a hypnotic kind of pace for me personally yeah no it's weird you you stay in one time period for a while and it feels slow and then you blink and it's 15 years later you know Mm -hmm. um we should talk about her performance though maureen o'hara as uh mary o'donnell yes is amazing just completely holds together the film 
uh, and is so expressive. And uh, I, I read that her performance here in a review is like more theatrical than usual for Ford. And I could kind of see that, but like it's, yeah, it's so like, even without speaking a word for the first hour of the film, pretty much, uh, she carries the film more than anything, you know, uh, Tyrone power is great, but it's really her film in a way. Uh, because like, I don't know. It's, if you're looking at how the institution changes a person, uh, you can really see it in how their relationship changes over the decade and how he sees her and how she sees the Academy, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I think I think uh, she's kind of like a catalyst for most of his decisions, and her love of military culture, um, I mean, is just are, is expressed in you know very touching ways. I mean, when the, after the the miscarriage she has, she requests that her bed be scooted up to see you know a, a routine military march, or even or even bef- the scene before that where um, we got Tyrone Power walking to her, you know, knowing that. Uh, his baby has had uh, has died. You know he's walking through these drills, and like you get like this, you know, this intersection of the personal and the institutional, and how much Maureen O'Hara loves that. You know, is is an interesting depiction of uh, you know ordinary people. You know, this this is yeah. such a strong culture, right? And to be raised in it, it's like how could you not respect it? You know, oh. unless you're getting you know unless you're getting some Marxist literature stuck <laughs> around the. The fucking, the fucking premises or something like that. That whole uh, miscarriage sequence is like so. I mean, there, so much of this movie is like beautiful and touching, and like I, I like cry at various points throughout this movie. But just like contrasting, like the immediate sense of like happiness and just like complete celebration, and them giving him the uh, the his military buddies giving him the sword. And then the doctor to just come and deliver this horrible news where it's like the people are still playing piano and singing and dancing and celebrating. And then he just goes outside and just like fucking like beats the shit out of that sword. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, that is like key uh, to the dramatic works of John Ford is that it's like people singing and dancing and the beauty of that making you want to cry tears of joy directly followed by just such deeply felt tragedy that makes you want to cry as well. So throughout this, you see so much of history. You see World War One. You see the invention of the forward pass in football. <laughs> in Did you see that, sir? It's illegal. It's a foul. It, it, it's baseball. It's legal, all right. Where I guess that is meant to show like that, uh, you know, that America wasn't ready for what was to come because the very next scene uh, is another one of those juxtapositions where they're celebrating something and they get the news of, or no, they're not celebrating, they're they're in a uh, church service and they get the news that uh, Japan had bombed Pearl Harbor and that they were in World War II now, you know, and the juxtaposition of emotions there is already so complex but then you get the face uh, of red whose father died in the first world war and him knowing that he's about to get shipped out into combat as well and it's just so so sad Mm -hmm. i mean yeah everything has contrast every single emotion has a almost a flip side emotion 
going against it. I mean, you're talking about um, kind of uh, the what's the name of the son who follows his father? Red. Yeah, the red character. I mean, we we see earlier him as a baby and then discussing his military future right after the death of his father. Um, Them being, you know, his mother and uh, the Hera couple, or no, the Maher couple, I should say, Tyrone Power and uh, Maureen O'Hara. And um, they're kind of convincing her to let him be in the military and then the scene kind of ends with the baby <laughs> crying once they kind of convince her and then yeah. the way that loops around is uh you know it's it's really masterful um so after world war ii then you're getting into the really depressing part of the film where time <laughs> kind of accelerates a little more and you get a young governor as you said earlier jt who maybe is a little more liberal maybe he's still like a republican and pro-military guy though uh but like the youngest governor in the country saying that you know uh the military is too uh, you know, into its tradition and they're not ready for what's to come, which again would be true. I mean, fucking Vietnam, ha- you know, was a decade after this film. Um, but like he says something there about tradition and it's that tradition versus reality juxtaposition that he brings up there. And then you have to think about, you know, the inherent like conservative nature of institutions of America, you know, and how no matter how much like humanity uh, and empathy people try to draw out of those uh, institutions and how successfully Ford is with that, you know, here, uh, there's always that like really awful other side of it that it is just like an american very reactionary institution you know yeah and i think you know the ford you know staging this movie over a lifetime and then giving us all these uh you know these hard truths or these contrasting opinions and stuff like that um i think really fit the format of a lifetime he's he's really given you you know everything and you know showing uh not even showing different perspectives but just bringing up different questions that you know most filmmakers wouldn't even dare to ask and i also love later on uh after well we should just discuss her death scene uh maureen o'hara's passing away there where you get that shot from behind uh into the hallway oh god hit the floor just one of the like that is up there with the you know final shots of the searchers or even uh wayne picking up natalie wood and the searchers uh just for the most like devastation you can have in a single image but after that uh as a single man you see him like cooking christmas dinner for himself which is scrambled eggs uh, and then a bunch of youngins from the uh, military academy whose fathers and even grandfathers uh he knew get together with him and they uh you know as a fellow franchise mode head malcolm i'm sure you also appreciated <laughs> him drafting his all-time uh, army football team no yeah that that was a fun little party he was having he also got like a tricked out pipe with like uh yeah, like, dude. like a sick design on it like a handle or something like that he was gonna be <laughs> he was gonna be smoking fat out of that nice little pipe he got there <laughs> Uh, and after that, the last thing we get is just the most heartbreaking scene. It's like Ford going, I don't even know, like almost Hitchcockian, uh, mm-hmm. like vertigo level, uh, like psychological torture. Yeah. Uh, because you just see him getting this ceremony for himself. It's like a surprise that they're putting on for him. And it's just like a tr- kind of a normal march where they're just marching for him. 
and uh, then he just sees uh, his dead father and his dead wife, and it cuts to their friend Kit, who's uh, you know she was married to Red uh, Senior, and you know she's there with her, her son. If only old Martin and Mary were here. They are here, and the others. Tyrone Power just like he's in shock. He can't believe it. He's reaching out. And, you know, his colleague is holding his hand down because he sees, you know, uh, his past right in front of him. And it's just such a, like, just such a heartbreaking thing where then church bells fade in over the military music and then the end comes up. And it's like the most dissonant, uh, beautiful, heartbreaking, strange ending I've seen from Ford. And uh, it's a masterpiece. Five bullets. No, yeah, the way it ends is super perplexing. It's like, you know, to speak in grand terms, it's like Ford reaching for the beyond. It's because, like, the the way this, you know, this ends for, um, you know, I'm looking at the poster here. The poster says, a great place, a great guy, a great picture, or whatever. <laughs> and this 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 is this, this is the send-off we get for this great guy, this, you know, generally nice guy who's, you know, done everything the military asks him. And you get kind of like this... This march that seems to happen a lot, but like the one difference is that they're playing the song that he likes, and uh, yeah, that he <laughs> and and that you know he this causes him to see visions of uh you know of his his past there and stuff like that, and it's of course it's touching right as we get to revisit these characters that you know we've seen throughout the movie, but it's also just like something so ordinary or you know kind of boring, meaning so much to this character and drawing so many emotions out of him as you know he's you know as he realizes he's drawing the near the end of his life is just such a it's such a such a pill to swallow you know so to speak and then you get like this this sound layering of the church bells and it sounds like i don't know it's almost like it's about to climax towards something and then it just kind of uh ends and you know that's that's just people's lives you know they see the light they have a small significant ceremony for them and uh you know they reflect on their loved ones and then they die. And that's what happens here, even though he doesn't die at the end of the movie, but you have to imagine, you have to imagine he dies soon. But uh, yeah, this, this yeah instantly became one of my favorite Fords. And I think you're right. This falls into like the existential type Ford, like a wagon master is. And uh, I'm going to go four and a half bullets. Thank you, JT, for bringing this to me and me and Eddie. What did you think? Um, yeah, I'm giving this one, uh, five bullets. It's, like, I don't want to go as far as saying, well, no, it's probably, it's my favorite Ford. Um, it's just so beautiful and heartbreaking and, like, is everything I love about Ford's filmography and keeps me coming back to his work and just exploring it in all avenues. Like, we were talking about the ending and, um, it, it concludes with the it, like him telling the story of his life is like to the president and he's talking to the president because he's trying to keep his enlistment at West Point to like stay there because he doesn't know anything else in his life. And that like is all he has. And it's just like it's like be- like it's beautiful how much he cares about something and like to have a character that filled with such compassion but it's like every i mean like he has um his friends 
uh, wife and their son, like as connections, but like his family is pretty much departed and that's just so heartbreaking. And I mean, as we've talked about throughout the whole discussion that I think the really progressive and like empathy that Ford has for people is like beautifully contrasted. Like a lot of his work with like the structure of the shot composition, just like the reverence for institutions and traditions. There's so much going on in this picture. I just, uh, God, I love it so much. It's pure Americana. And you know what we're doing this season on Extended Clip? We're loving our troops, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. America first. Uh, Ameri- and, you know, it was always that way in my, in my heart of hearts. Um, Look, as, as far as I'm concerned, the troops are my homeboys. <laughs> Someone has to pick up where Rebeller left off. Oh yeah, you know, honestly, yeah. In you know, message to Sunny Bunch. Pour one out for Rebeller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Message to Sunny Bunch. You know, you know when you're doing great things, when you when you're popping off, making mad article money, people are gonna hate regardless, regardless whether they uh, <laughs> agree with the you know political opinions of like a, I don't know, you had like a book about a woman who like said something racist on Twitter or something like that. And she like said her experience. That's, <laughs> that sounds like a good read. I'll read 300 pages of that. Um, but when you make it stuff like that, people are going to hate. And uh, I'm sorry that you let the hate get to you. That's see, that's what separates the, the, the winners from the champions. And you're going to, you're going to want to be a champion <laughs> in, in this life. Cause that's the, those are the people who last. So, you know, and Outlaw Cinema isn't dead. You know, it lives here at Extended Clip. I think people listening, long-time listeners, already know this. But Sunny Bunch, you know, better luck next time. I'm sure this is not the last I'm going to see of you. I'm sure you got a, a bright future. So, you know, just keep on... Make Rebeller 2 soon. Because I'll, I'll be first in line for it. Speaking of Outlaws, I did also like that... Uh, not a character you see on screen, but mentioned by name in this film, you hear of a Major Gillis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, talk about a, another person who uh, deserves a second chance, Shane Gillis. Look, we're throwing out the bat signal, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to refill my water and take a piss. I'll be back in a minute. Yeah, I'm going to take my dog out real quick. I'll be right back. Nice. You know what? I'll get some water. And we're back on Extended Clip. Since this is a double-stuffed, triple-feature episode, we're actually going to take a double shot of Malcolm in the Middle. So, uh, (laughs) Malcolm, is there anything else you've been watching this week? Yeah, you know what? I haven't been watching that many movies, to be honest. But one I did watch, one I cleared my schedule for and made time especially to watch it, was this movie called Private Lessons. And um, similar to uh, a movie I talked about on the show at some point, um, My Tutor, we have um, we have what sounds like it's going to be like a, a teacher-student romance, but actually 
There's no teaching involved. We have a 15-year-old boy who is basically um, getting sexually coerced by his, you know, 30-something-year-old uh, French housekeeper maid. And um, it starts with him, you know, doing some, some classic 80s boys spying, where it's, you know, you had the playful, fun little boy spying on women while they're getting dressed. And uh, eventually, you know, she just invites invites him in. And uh, it's, it's, it's a really uncomfortable movie because it's literally just like a 30-year-old woman uh, coercing a 15-year-old boy into having sex with her. And, like, the boy, the boy looks young as fuck. And he's, like, making out with her. It's a really fucked up movie. And um, it wasn't exactly fun to watch like uh, My Tutor was. With My Tutor, you have, like, this jacked guy it makes sense why someone would want to fuck that guy whereas this one uh it's just it seems like a literal child having sex with a grown woman um, <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> um and not in a cool larry clark art house way uh, <laughs> um so yeah i I'd, I'd skip this one you know i'm anti abibophilia pedophilia all that stuff and um this was kind of upsetting to watch um, but you know, it's, it's, it's still two bullets because, and I know we don't usually give ratings on here, but it's not a complete wash because you just have the fun atmosphere, you know, running around a mansion, some fun music. That's enough to get, you know, to keep a movie afloat, even though it's morally reprehensible. But, uh, so that's what I've been watching. Uh, who wants to go next? I'm not even going to say a name. Someone has to step up. Uh, I'll fucking step up. I am going <laughs> to. Hell yeah. That's what that's what this is all about, dude. It's all about fucking teamwork, stepping up to the plate when you need it. This academy we build podcasters. <laughs> I mean, we get satisfaction I'm- not from the outside world, but from our own actions, and that's what's important. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> that's actually a very good transition because something a part of uh, a, a new resolutions for season two. I'm all about chasing clout and yes. uh, getting getting those fucking clicks. So I'm going to introduce a segment that I might return to do another time. Um, but it's Hello Newman, and I'll send you the <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll send you the, uh, the the sound clip for this. Um, but yes, we have we have talked about blank check a few times. On our podcast, uh, noted featuring noted worm and cuckold Griffin Newman. Hello, Newman. <laughs> Hello, Newman. Hello, Newman. Someone whose heart is so dark it cannot be swayed by pity, emotion, or human compassion of any kind. And I like. I wanted to. I don't know. I don't know much about the man. I'm mostly just looking for someone to bully and to hate um to to hitch my star onto um and he makes but, it too easy yeah no I, when you look like that it's like how could i not buddy um but he has been in some films aside from being a podcaster he's a fucking actor it's like what is this about guy pick a lane um, yeah, <laughs> probably works with some some shady people too. If he's an actor, right? Like he <laughs> yeah. probably some people who haven't done exactly the right thing in life. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he was in the first uh, part of my ongoing series. Uh, is a dog shit movie, and I expect the rest of his work to be similarly <laughs> dog shit caliber. It was 2014's Free the Nipple 
by Lena Esco. Um, it was an independent release. Um, you get you guys, you're smart fe- male feminists. You know about the, oh, yeah. the nipple movement. Um, Lena Esco directed this movie. She also stars in it. Um, it and is about like her real life. She was the woman who coined uh, the free the nipple um, thing. Just getting like because it's legal some places for women in some states to just like take their tits out and like walk shirtless, which is fine. Like I don't like I. That's not my <laughs> problem with this movie is disagreeing <laughs> with free the nipple. You see a good deal of tits in this movie. <laughs> it's nice. Um, one of the more pleasant. They might need parts. to cover up. I might not approve of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but so, yeah, they, um, it, I mean, funny enough, like the version of this I saw was censored where like some of the titties are blurred out, which I guess is kind of making the point of the free the nipple stuff where it's like, Oh, America is fine with violence, but like, um, doesn't, like to show sexuality but it's just the most self-serving like white feminist bullshit i have ever fucking seen it is like fucking appalling how um self-indulgent this is all the characters are like sort of e-journalists who like fucking like are living in new york but are like broke as fuck but like broke as fuck in the sense where it's like oh i don't want to ask dad for more money uh for my rent (laughs) and uh it's like they're like trying to finally a movie about me and my friends (laughs) (laughs) um they're just trying to like um drum up something for this campaign uh, to do free the nipple shit. They're trying to get like celebrities on board and everything, but they valorize this shit in like, especially now, like with like real like protesting and activism going on with the George Floyd movement. This was like horrifying to see like the slow-mo like shots of just like them running with their tits out. Like someone who like, this was her real life. And now she's like talking about this being the most important and like revolutionary sanctified act um, to happen. And like, they're like the whole joke is like, Oh, we're punk badass women. There's like, um, literally a scene where like the main character is walking down the street, talking to another one where she's talking about masturbating to a video of herself. And it's like, that is what this, <laughs> the act of making this fucking movie was. It's about all like fucking nonprofit bullshit. Um, there's a weird appearance where Janine Garofalo is doing a terrible accent. And then the main, the, the director um, conceivably a line that she has written is saying that it's crazy that like you can't see like you women can't be shirtless in America. It's like we're living in a communist country and it's just like the <laughs> fucking mind blowing like white liberal bullshit. Um, it's, fu- owns. it's, it's fucking awful. Uh, Griffin Newman in it to, uh, to touch somewhat, bash him too (laughs) he's like he's the cucked uh male feminist roommate ally friend of the uh like main character he gets roped up into the plot because he's like oh man like uh like she's like oh do you want to like meet some women and stuff like that selling it like oh are they single 
And he's like a very minor character, pretty like cucked BS. I mean, pretty, I would imagine this portrayal that he's doing is like similar <laughs> to how he is in real life. Um, but yeah, it's just a dog shit movie. Um, don't seek it out. Avoid it at all costs. Uh, what about you, Eddie? Have you seen anything else? Um, I have not been watching a lot of dog shit. You know, I should. I, I've been like, uh, you know, watching too many good fucking movies. I watched Cruisin. Uh, but you know what? We've talked about Cruisin maybe even twice on this podcast. So yeah. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about The Color of Money. Uh, this is a sequel to a movie that I've never seen and probably never will, but it's directed by Martin Scorsese and stars Paul Newman and uh, Tom Cruise. And uh, who, who's who's DeBrod in that movie again? <laughs> uh, and Mary Elizabeth Mastriano. Mastriano. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and the three of them, um, you know, Paul Newman, of course, uh, being a uh, former pool hustler, Fast Eddie uh, of the <laughs> hustler fame, uh, he kind of takes on Cruz as his protege, and it's such a fucking stupid, corny, like, sports movie from the 80s, but you just have these titans of acting and behind-the-camera talent like fucking Scorsese and Bauhaus, obviously, who shot some of his nicest-looking films and some of Fassbender's nicest-looking films as well, uh, and you just have pure movie magic here. Like, there's a shot in here where... Uh, fucking Fast Eddie pulls up into the Atlantic City uh, like tournament pool hall and he hasn't played professionally in like decades I guess and there's this shot where Scorsese just cranes down from the top of the like this huge fucking uh, high ceiling building uh, looking at this you know grid of pool tables and lights and you know going through uh the light fixtures and ending up right behind him and then you just cut to a perfect reverse of like a close-up on paul newman in sunglasses just staring down the barrel of the camera and it's just like uh oh he's back to playing pool now it's like a dumb guy <laughs> movie but directed with so much fucking swagger and acted with like every ounce of charisma that all three leads have in their bones like tom cruise is fucking tom cruise in this movie he's going so hard it's just i don't know can't recommend it enough you want to just have a good time vibe out to the power of cinema for two hours <laughs> check out the color of money i you know just to comment on the free the nipple thing that's crazy i thought that was i you know looking at the poster i would have swore that was a documentary but I, it's i can't believe that it's like a narrative fiction film about freeing the nipple Something that didn't even didn't even happen, you know. <laughs> Pretty much everyone made fun of it, like as soon as it started happening. Like, I don't know, maybe not the most worthy cause. Who's the, who produced this? You know, is there anything worse than the American independent movie? No, there really isn't. And <laughs> I mean, that's that's why I say I'm a fan of the studio system. Like, you know, people are like, oh, Marvel movies are so they 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 look gray. It's like. Do you really want to watch Free the Nipple? Do you want to give a platform to people like Griffin Newman? It's like I'll I'll take I'll take fucking Scarlett Johansson saying fucking bullshit Josh Whedon dialogue if that's if that's protecting me from other shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, honestly, I would rather watch fucking uh like yeah, fucking who who who's the other who's who's the broad in that movie? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, i'd rather watch fucking chris <laughs> P 
Pratt say, uh, that just happened to like, the talking tree <laughs> than fucking watch Tiny Furniture, honestly. <laughs> yeah, same. Then an 80s songs play, you know? An 80, a song yeah, from exactly. the 80s. Oh, dude, remember? I remember. <laughs> <laughs> they, they did, too. <laughs> um, we'll be right back. I bet there's not a soft spot on you. And we're back on extended clip. Did you guys see uh, Lex G's commentary on that video of all the celebrities today? Yes. Yes, I did. It was and great, I, dude. I, Stanley I, Tucci shaved his sides for it. And Lex G said, free the sides. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, died, I, I doubted him calling uh, Mark Duplass Jeff Wells. I thought that was... <laughs> <laughs> I laughed so hard at that. Oh, my God. <laughs> The God. I mean, I'm only saying this on pod because he unlocked when he posted that video. So I'm sure he's taking the publicity. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the all timers. <laughs> Follow him. Follow him before he locks up again. Oh, shit. I need to get on that. I uh, thank you, fellas, for letting me know. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, so The Beguiled, uh, this is a film by Don Siegel starring Clint Eastwood. And, you know, Don Siegel taught Clint Eastwood kind of how to direct, or at least he's one of the guys who did. And uh, even Clint Eastwood's first uh, real, not real directorial effort, his first credit technically is like a behind the scenes documentary about Don Siegel directing this movie. <laughs> uh, fascinating enough. So this is kind of the transition into the Eastwood movie. But if you've seen any other Don Siegel, it also fits in with that mold very well, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is kind of Siegel and Eastwood. They've been together making movies for a hot minute at this point. And this is kind of them taking a leap into something that's, you know, kind of more transgressive than their other films. And more like, this is kind of like an art house film. Like, this is Siegel kind of at his most... Uh, with his most flourishes and his most uh, attention to, I don't know, um, just camera tricks and stuff like that, at least in my experience. And them going for something different than just kind of a cool Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood being like a cool or a Gary to- Cooper type. We're, we're, oh, this yeah, is, he's definitely not cool in this. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is definitely hard to handle and um, probably couldn't have been made until, you know, the little sexual revolution we had in the late 60s don siegel might have been sitting on this one for a hot minute (laughs) waiting to make a a salacious civil war tale yeah no because like the first thing you see from clint eastwood is him ask you know the youngest girl how old are amy 12 13 in september all enough for kisses and I guess that's kind of a litmus test. Like, if you if you want to just shut off the movie, there you can. You know? Yeah, uh, you yeah. don't have to watch the ne- you don't have to watch the next hour and forty five if you don't want to. But if you do want to, you are in for a treat because it's a great film. I feel like this is a bad that's a bad scene to jump off to say this, but this feels like this this is such a Malcolm pick. Like it just <laughs> it loses your essence. Like hey, it's thanks. problematic. Like I, it's sleazy. Like beautiful. It's it, I don't know. I just I, I thought about you a lot during this one. Well, thank you, man. Thank you. It's it is it is it is a lot of things I'm going for. I'm trying to be like a cool Lothario, like Clint, you know. But I'm also trying to be punished for my bad actions. You know, <laughs> ultimately, I think I should be, you know, sh- strucken down, so to speak. 
<laughs> and it's funny because this film looks kind of like a sloppy exploitation movie at points, but it's only mm-hmm. in a purposeful manner, you know? Like, mm-hmm. it's so precise in the way that it kind of sloshes along in that wet, humid, slow Southern way. Uh, and it's so selective with like the flashbacks. Uh, I love the flashback where mm-hmm. Clint is like telling uh, when he's trying to win over uh, this household. Uh, he, first of all, we should say, if you haven't seen this or the Coppola one, uh, the plot is that a wounded uh, Union soldier in the Civil War is taken in by a Confederate uh, or, you know, a Southern uh, girls school. And they want to just heal him up before they give him over to the police so he doesn't die on the way. So anyway, he's trying to win this family over and he talks about how much he respects the land and like how he just was astonished at how poorly the land was treated in the battlefield. And it just cuts to him lighting bushels on fire in the middle of a field, (laughs) just (laughs) destroying fucking beautiful southern landscapes yeah don siegel and clint eastwood whenever they pair up together there's there's always going to be some real punchy and kind of like um what do you call it maybe even irresponsible comedy too you know even in in oh yeah and like even the way (laughs) even the way clint speaks in this movie i think a lot of his line deliveries are super funny because a lot of the movie he is you know lying to women right that's a classic thing to do (laughs) oh man um, (laughs) <laughs> I think the best line delivery in that vein of what you were saying is when he's gotten his leg cut off and then he's like, she's like, uh, chatting the older woman about it. And he's like, you might cut off my other leg, like leaving this, <laughs> <laughs> leaving the space to just like, uh, he's going to say cock. It's so cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, Clint, oh, Clint's so it. cheeky in this, and it's it's uh it's almost like he's uh he's always saying the right thing or whatever. And then you know when he meets his fate, kind of uh, towards the back end of the movie, all that kind of uh, phony charm and bravado uh, distills into something much more ugly and like ravenous. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's a great turn. And throughout the film, uh, the sexual tension is building between him and each of the women of the house, other than the 12 year old girl from the beginning, uh, all of the of age women, uh, quote unquote. Uh, (laughs) And uh, alongside that, the tension is mounting as the kind of Southern, like, uh, not in uniform kind of militia patrol is circling the area. And uh, the moment that, you know, Clint knows that the moment they put a blue flag out on the post, that those guys will know that they're housing a union soldier and will just come and kill him probably. Uh, So that's where the suspense lies in the first half. But then after he betrays one of the young women by making out with another one, uh, the blue flag is put on and they rush him. And after Clint is able to single-handedly take down the three guys, uh, or at least hold them off until uh, Martha, the woman who runs the school is able to explain it. At that moment, he goes from being their prisoner to their guest and their object, their communal object of desire. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean that's what's that's what's funny about this film. And like also what I like about there's nothing there's nothing uh that's not explicit about it. It's explicit at every corner. And like right as, you know, Clint enters as they carry him into, you know, the school, there's already just offhand comments that's like, let's take off his pants and see he ha- see if he has a tail. 
because like <laughs> Union soldiers are rumored to have tails and stuff like that, and it's just this uh, it, this new uh, new formed male presence really captures the imaginations of uh, you know every every everyone there, and he's kind of uh, he's kind of like a canvas for them to project their own desires onto, and he's willing to play along uh, like the player he is. And yeah, stylistically, I feel like Siegel is just indulging in every way he can without being too showy. It's strange. It's mm-hmm. like whenever there is a zoom, it's so impactful because he uses them kind of sparsely. Uh, but I feel like every scene, if you break it down, has something kind of stylistically bombastic going on within it. Uh, and as the film goes on, you know, more uh, trust is broken and whatnot. You have the great scene where. Uh, the woman who he had proposed to uh, walks in on him having sex with uh, the younger woman who was so attracted to him and she throws him down the stairs while he's still healing and he then uh, hurts his leg, re-injures it so bad that it has to be amputated or else it would eat itself uh, due to gangrene and he would die that way so they amputate his leg they bury his leg which is pretty funny in my opinion <laughs> uh, and then he just turns on them completely uh he feels castrated and they make that explicit he even says it <laughs> which is pretty hilarious like it's not even in subtext and he just goes full fucking villain mode after that and says that he's not going to leave until he's had his fill uh, which is exactly as bad as it sounds. Why don't you just leave this place? Not till I've had my fill. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, you know, he's he's once he once he realizes his you know his legs cut off, it's uh the the veneer is off, and uh, you know he's just he's pointing guns at small girls, you know, killing turtles. He doesn't really. <laughs> it's all the nice all the niceness is gone. He's a little bit off the booze too, and uh, it takes. Um, the more you know, the quote-unquote sensible character of the young school teacher to kind of uh, convince him into calming down, and uh, you know, basically um, trying to run off with him. And it's so funny how you know you get this sour display of him, you know, threatening some pretty nasty things to everyone there, and then once he comes back out again for dinner, he's uh, back to his old charming self, you know, <laughs> talking poetically about the mushrooms picked for him and stuff like that. It's a uh, the, the phoniness of Clint Eastwood in this movie cannot be understated. It's really funny, but it's also really effective and, you know, sinister in parts, too. And, um, I mean, this movie, does, like, the, the, it does have, like, a horror film sensibility to it just because of, like, its gothic setting. I mean, the, the, the way everything's uh, shot and just, like, I mean, I don't know, the whole, the whole leg amputation scene is pretty transgressive. I mean, like, the for... Uh, I don't know, for a mainstream movie to come out for old, you know, movie star Clint. I mean, you know, the, the crunching of the bone saw and stuff like that. It's, uh, it's going full hawk. Oh yeah. I mean, it calls back to the black cat, the skinning that goes down yeah. in that, you know? Uh, and then also this calls back to the other two because it's just like the presence of death from a war haunting all of these people. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's also about how, uh, I think, uh, Gray Line and Beguiled do this especially, but how kind of war affects domestic life or like, you know, the effects of war removed from the battlefield and all the people who are in it. I mean, you have all these Confederate soldiers running around and, you know, uh, even though our villain is a Union soldier, uh, Siegel does not depict 
these guys are, you know, objectively worse than Eastwood because they, they're coming in, you know, with very uh, sinister intentions right off the bat, you know, saying like, oh, oh yeah. we want to protect you. Let's leave a couple here. And this guy's looking around with these ravenous eyes. It's like, I'm not, you cannot stay here. You're, you're about to, you're about to commit a sexual crime with those eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like civil war movies in general have like a tendency to fall into like black and white morality. Mm-hmm. Um, because they like, they ultimately wind up like just valorizing like the union as like the good guys and like leave a a pretty flat note there. But like all of, uh, like the characters are sort of in like a murky area of like desperation and aggression. I think that like is perfect for like a war that was so bloody and brutal. And then just like on top of it, like the ending and like the collapsing of like the South at that time that you're sort of watching take place in the background as the union gets closer and closer. No. Yeah. I mean the, the complexities presented here, I mean, are, it's 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 very apparent and like everyone in the household has like different nuanced opinions no one's like it doesn't seem like anyone's hardly you know union or confederate except for there's a couple of girls who are you know very pro-confederate saying things like oh you know my dad says god's on the confederacy side you know (laughs) saying the n-word to the you know the slave that they have yeah and we should talk about the fact that there is a slave like at the school and Mm -hmm. that you know clint has a kind of special relationship with her that she denies obviously uh, mm-hmm. because they're not the same obviously you and i ought to be friends Allie. how you figure that well we're both kind of prisoners here are we but one different mr yank i can run yeah it's like the Sofia Coppola one ignores slavery completely. Like uh, it's really strange. And like, I didn't really see that as an issue when I watched the Coppola one. Cause I was like, it's its own thing, whatever. But then just watching this and seeing how this film handles that. I'm like, Oh shit. Yeah. There were, there were some, uh, bad omissions let's just say that yeah no definitely it makes it like a lot more nuanced and like uglier like adding that perspective and it's just like especially with like a movie so like civil war south like ignoring such like a key and like disturbing part of it like i don't know it's it's a pretty powerful omission no yeah yeah and it's i mean what what the God is doing with, you know, the slave character is, you know, providing, you know, so many, you know, different moments. I mean, right when, um, when he's kind of first captured and he's trying to, he's trying to relate to, you know, this woman, this enslaved woman, you know, saying, well, I'm trying to free you. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, the classic, I'm one of the good ones. And like, you know, she's, you know, she's just skeptical of everything, you know, because, I mean, how could she not, not be and it 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 doesn't give you those easy answers right i mean any movie with a union soldier and a slave in it you'll you'll see the white savior complex of you know them probably saving that slave where you know we got we got a white devil in the household (laughs) speaking of that very white devil uh he 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 partakes in some devilish acts in the dream world as well there's a great dream sequence where Martha dreams of having a three-way with him and one of the younger girls at the school. And it 
ends in like a way that the blocking uh mimics a painting that's in the house just like in like fire walk with me kind of uh it's a really creepy uh i'll say strangely erotic scene (laughs) siegel showing his art house chops in this scene entirely you know yeah destroying a lot of people's careers with this one amazing scene that you know registers so many different tones and is you know, so lushly shot. It's it's something that you wouldn't even expect from him throughout his career. Something like a great movie like Riot on Cell Block Fifty Five. I don't know. I don't. I forgot the exact number. But he made <laughs> he made a movie about a prison right, and it's just it's so efficient. Has a strong you know uh, anti anti prison labor exploitation message, and it's you know it's very it's very almost Ulmer like in a sense. Whereas this one is he gets to indulge and his, you know, his indulgences are very impressive. And, you know, like you said, not in your face, but like he'll have these moments where he'll flourish a little bit more and he hits it out of the park, you know, in my book. Oh yeah. And so the final attempt to kill him uh, is by poisoning him with mushrooms. And uh, he then dies while trying to run away after that was revealed and much like Clint's uh, film that he would make 38 years later, uh, Grand Torino, the film ends with Clint Eastwood dead singing over the ending <laughs> of the film as it goes into the credits. Uh, just beautiful. What else could you ask for in a Malpaso production, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Clint tracks throughout the years. I mean, you know, that's, that's something we, we need him to sing more. Yeah, we got to release the extended clip Clint Eastwood mixtape. <laughs> he's he's probably released an album or has one in the vault. If I if I for have to sure, guess. for sure. Um, I'm going four bullets on this one. I I definitely want to revisit it in time too. I feel like it's going to be one that sticks with me. It's also the third one I watched in a day where or it wasn't the third one actually but uh still it was i watched that after the long gray line like how the fuck am i gonna be able to focus on anything after the long gray line uh but this movie was incredible and i love you know uh the problematic and uh horned up clint eastwood movies of course uh especially when they're as just like stylistically dense as this one and uh just have so much going on like thematically and all the performances are so not really nuanced the performances are pretty broad but in a really lovely way and they all kind of fit tonally together so uh yeah it's a great film four bullets what about you guys five bullets yeah, i brought this one to the table it's a personal favorite of mine. Um, this kind of launched my love for Siegel too, who's you know has a lot of different types of movies throughout his career, and uh, this one is probably my favorite just because it's him kind of showing off everything he could do and putting a lot of different tones into one movie. I think this this movie is kind of equally messed up, but is also willing to like laugh at itself at parts, and it's just you know could be really funny and just how Clint Eastwood's delivering a line. And uh, just kind of like this punchy direction by Siegel is just really invigorating and um, adds a lot to the storyline that, I don't know, in the, in the wrong hands could be, you know, boring or, you know, maybe too tasteful. It kind of toes the line between, it doesn't go full exploitation, but, uh, um, you know, it's not, it's not uh, the Beguiled 2017 or anything like that. So, um, you know, Sofia Coppola, no Don Siegel, um, but, you know, she's made some good, great movies too. You know, not to discredit her, but uh, <laughs> JT, 
What do you think? Um, I'm gonna give this one four and a half bullets. I really liked it. I wasn't like uh the last seagull I and or the only other seagull I've seen was uh Dirty Harry, which it's been years and it didn't like I liked it like when I saw it as a young young buck. Um, mm -hmm. but like, didn't leave a lasting impression. I liked the Coppola one, like, well enough, but this just like really fucking blew me away. And like, now I'm definitely going to seek out more of the Eastwood labs. Cause this, like, I don't know, like we were saying right out the gate, like actively transgressive, like him, like kissing that 12 year old girl, then him, like one of the line spoken um from the women is if the yankees win they'll rape every one of us it's just like a film that doesn't let up in that brutality but like by like it's also very sparing with how it displays like actual violence and like sexuality in the film um yeah no it's a fantastic time and uh yeah all right um that's gonna do it for this week's extended clip uh you can always reach out to us on twitter at extended clip 69 uh i'm at ipod underscore video i'm at bitch face palace i'm at tall boy thin legs has anyone ever taken you to task for the uh harmful language in your screen name malcolm literally no <laughs> um and i think you know this is this is this is something maybe not a lot of people know but like when you're operating with a pure heart and stuff like that. No matter what you say, people know you have the best intentions. And I think... Um, <laughs> that's why you that's, can get away with saying anything. That's why you could say anything. It's when, if you have a pure heart and good intentions like me, just know that you can say anything you want. And people aren't going to take you to task for it because to do so would to, you know, would to, would to conflict with their own self-interest. So. Well... I guess we'll leave you with that. <laughs> um, oh, uh, I guess we didn't plan for next week, huh? Yeah, no. No, whatever. Okay. Uh, see you next week. Cool. Have a guns. Come on, you young fellow. Don't go for us. I'm sure that many of them join no army.